Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So can a president really declassify documents just by thinking about it? The lead starts right now. A defiant Donald Trump pushing back, the former president is insisting he had the power to declassify documents seized from his Mar-a-Lago home just by thinking about it. But did he? Plus, a revolt in Russia, long lines to leave as Putin tries to ramp up his war in Ukraine. The Kremlin punishing protesters, forcing some to fight in the very war they want to stop. And a crisis of democracies, the warning to the world from French President Emmanuel Macron, his exclusive U.S. interview with Jake Tapper, as he also weighs in on his name being wrapped up in Trump's Mar-a-Lago case. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Pamela Brown in for Jake Tapper, and we begin with our politics lead. And just in, the special master in the Trump Mar-a-Lago documents case opens the door to hearing witness testimony. This coming after yet another legal defeat for former President Donald Trump. Three judges from the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals unanimously reversed District Judge Aileen Cannon's decision on some of the documents recovered from Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate. That three-judge panel, one Obama and two Trump appointees, ruled the Justice Department can resume its criminal probe of the classified records. A special master's review of that subset of about 100 records is now partially stopped after Judge Cannon amended her ruling today. And just a short time ago, the special master delivered a new order to Trump's legal team to prove one notable aspect of the former president's public claims. In an interview with Fox's Sean Hannity recorded before the appeals court issued its ruling, the former president claimed he declassified the documents and he suggested that he could do so telepathically. If you're the president of the United States, you can declassify just by saying um, it's declassified, even by thinking about it. The court noted Trump hasn't presented any evidence to support that he declassified everything and said that argument is a, quote, red herring. As CNN's Jessica Schneider reports, the opinion also notes that even if Trump did declassify the documents, they aren't his personal records. The Justice Department is once again digging into 100 classified documents that FBI agents seized from Mar-a-Lago. I think they're going to move forward very, very quickly. A three-judge panel, including two Trump appointees, unanimously ruling that DOJ can resume reviewing the classified material as part of its criminal probe into alleged obstruction and unlawful retention of documents, saying the hold that lower court judge Eileen Cannon put in place caused a real and significant harm on the United States and the public. DOJ says its investigators and FBI agents need to work hand-in-hand with officials assessing the national security risks of those documents remaining unsecured at Mar-a-Lago. It's boxes and boxes of pictures 
uh, newspaper articles. In an interview last night, the former president said he didn't know exactly what was in the boxes and that he had blanket authority to declassify anything. If you're the president of the United States, you can declassify just by saying um, it's declassified, even by thinking about it. But even Trump's allies on Capitol Hill questioning that logic. Up here, we take it very seriously. Um, People can get hurt. People can get killed if it's not stored correctly. There's a process for declassifying documents. There is a process that one must go through. The judges on the 11th Circuit also blasting Trump's unsubstantiated claims of declassification, writing, the record contains no evidence that any of these records were declassified. And before the special master, plaintiff resisted providing any evidence that he had declassified any of these documents. The judges went on to say that even if Trump had declassified, he still wouldn't have had claim on the documents as personal records. The U.S. government has every right to look at its own classified documents. Uh, Trump uh, derived no right to do that just because he took them to Mar-a-Lago. The ruling also prohibits Trump's legal team and the special master from reviewing any of the classified documents. It was an about face from what Judge Eileen Cannon had allowed, and she was forced to amend her order. The special master will now move forward, reviewing only the 11,000 documents that aren't classified. And the special master has actually just issued an order telling Trump's team to back up their out-of-court claims that the FBI planted evidence at Mar-a-Lago in a sworn declaration by the end of this month. Of course, Pam, it's an accusation that Trump and his allies have been making repeatedly, and now the special master wants proof. You know, it's all part of this larger order from the special master where he's even raising the possibility that at a future hearing he could call witnesses to talk about what was seized at Mar-a-Lago. So potentially a lot to come in the next two months. And again, just to remind our viewers, this is who Trump's team had initially suggested to the judge. All right, Jessica Schneider, thanks so much. And now in Russia, tear-filled goodbyes as Putin begins to send civilians to fight his bloody war in Ukraine. A child hugging her dad, seen in this video from Eastern Russia, posted on social media as others race to leave. All direct flights to countries that do not require Russian visas are sold out through Friday, and there are massive traffic jams that are clogging Russia's borders. Russia's top Google search today is, quote, how to break arm at home a move that would let a Russian man to avoid the draft. And police have arrested more than 1,300 anti-war protesters, some bloodied and directly drafted at the police station, according to reports. CNN's Kylie Atwood is at the United Nations. So, Kylie, all eyes were on the Security Council and Russia's Foreign Minister, Sergei Lavrov. He accused Ukraine of being, quote, racist. Yeah, a number of erroneous claims from the Russian foreign minister today. Uh, Not truly unexpected, uh, but noteworthy, given that he was sitting in the hot seat at a U.N. Security Council meeting on Ukraine and Ukrainian sovereignty. He also spoke uh, erroneously about neo-Nazis in Ukraine and Ukraine being the one to clamp down on dissent in its country, though, of course, we know that's what happens in Russia. Now, when it comes to his presence in that meeting, he was only there for a few minutes. He came in before he delivered his remarks and he left just minutes after delivering those remarks. And a U.S. official said that it indicates that the foreign minister couldn't bear 
to sit there and listen to the repeated criticism of Russia and that it shows further weakness of the Russians in this situation. Now, we should note that the Secretary of State uh, took a very direct attack on President Putin, saying he is the one who chose this war and calling on the world uh, to be critical of President Putin and saying if the Russians were stopped were to stop fighting right now, this war would come to an end. But if the Ukrainians stopped fighting, Ukraine would come to an end. He said diplomacy is the only way forward, but no diplomacy that would go against the UN Charter or that would reward Russia for this invasion. All right, Kelly, I would thank you so much. And one of the strongest rebukes of Putin this week came from French President Emmanuel Macron, who told the UN the war, quote, paves the way for other wars of annexation in Europe, or beyond. Jake Tapper sat down with the French president for a U.S. exclusive interview. And joining me now is the president of France, Emmanuel Macron, in a U.S. exclusive. Thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Very happy to be here. We're happy to have you here. So you gave a very forceful speech at the United Nations. You said that Vladimir Putin is making a new mistake following his announcement that he's going to mobilize hundreds of thousands of new Russian troops. You said He has made Russia more and more isolated because of his commitment to a war that you said was illegal and illegitimate. You are perhaps the Western leader who has had more time talking with Putin one-on-one than any other. Why do you think he's doing this, and can he be talked out of it? Look, uh, it's hard to me to, to give an explanation. I think this is not the most rational decision, for sure. When he decided to launch his war, the 24th of February, I think he made a first mistake, a huge one. And he decided to put Russia in a situation, indeed, to, to be the new imperial country and to launch a colonial war. During the past few months, I have to say that all of us were very impressed by the reaction and the resistance of Ukrainian people. We helped them from a military point of view, humanitarian point of view, economic point of view, but they did resist. And I think they, are, they did and they do much better than a lot of people thought a few months ago. Mm-hmm. Now, I think after the counteroffensive, Vladimir Putin is much more under pressure. And after especially some clear statements made by a lot of leaders, not just Western leaders, few months ago, Vladimir Putin conveys a message. I was aggressed by NATO. They triggered the situation and I just reacted. Now it's clear for everybody that the leader who decided to go to war, the leader who decided to escalate, is President Putin. And I have no rational explanation. I think this is a series of um, resentments. This is a strategy of hegemony in the region. And I would say this is a post-COVID-19 consequence. Isolation. Because he's been so isolated? I think so. I think so. Do you think the countless hours that you have spent reaching out to him, talking to him, trying to talk him out of doing this, attempting diplomacy, do you think that has been helpful or will be helpful? Uh, we We will know that at the end of the day. I'm sure that during years and years, especially with Chancellor Merkel, we spent a lot of time in what we call the Normandy format to speak with uh, 
President Poroshenko and afterwards President Zelensky, President Putin and both of us. Because we were convinced with Chancellor Merkel that spending all this time to try to implement the Minsk agreement signed in 2014 was the best way to avoid an escalation. I think what we got in 2019 was very positive for Ukraine and was definitely a progress towards peace. But as I told you, post-COVID-19, there was a totally new situation. So he had a window of opportunity and he decided to completely break the linearity of, uh, of this situation and, and go to the war. I do believe that all the discussions we had were useful. Second, I think in his own logic, I'm not saying this is an explanation or, or I don't give any excuse, but we have to take into consideration that there is a lot of resentment on the Russian side. He has a feeling that post-1990s, we, uh, we didn't respect him properly. I think it's not a reason to do what he, what he did. It's part, but it's his mindset. It's his mindset. So we have to understand that because it's always more efficient to be respected and to try to find a way forward when you have this discussion. Third, I think it's useful because, for instance, thanks to this dialogue, we managed to organize this mission with the international agency to go to the, to the nuclear plant of Zaporizhia, mm -hmm. to have an independent mission. And we are, I hope, finalizing a very important agreement to protect this nuclear plant and, and to go towards demilitarization, but at least to be sure that there is no more weapons in this, uh, uh, in this area. I want to insist on that. Mm -hmm. We have to avoid, obviously, Russia winning this war. We have to help Ukraine to be free and to uh, get the full control of its territory. But at a point of time... Does that include Crimea? It will be Ukraine to, be, to decide that. The Ukrainians and the Russians will have to go at the, at, at the table to negotiate. So it will be the end of the stuff. President Biden said at the UN that Russia isn't just attacking Ukraine. Russia is attacking the United Nations Charter. Yeah. Because you have here in the United Nations Security Council a country, Russia, that has committed human rights abuses and potential war crimes, invaded a sovereign nation, and on and on. Is Russia proving that the UN is not worth the building it's in? Because the UN can't stop this? No, I, 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 I don't think so, because nobody proposed an alternative order or more efficient one. I think I... I, I, I exp you can understand why people are skeptical of the UN, though, when you have the R Russia on the Security Council. But for sure, this is true, but this is how our world functions. I mean, we are in favor of a reform of the Security Council to especially have a better uh, representativity of the African continent and, and some emerging countries. But I, I do believe that our responsibility is to make this international order functioning. But... We have to preserve our values and the charter. Everybody is at stake because we are speaking about respect of sovereignty and territorial integrity. And, and it's exactly why we built this charter post-World War II and after the colonization era. And I think defending this principle is not just defending Ukraine. It's defending all the countries and the possibility of peace in this world. During the past few months, you had a Russian narrative and they wanted to create a situation, the West versus the rest. This is a big danger. This divide is a big danger. You have said 
that China and India and some other countries are siding with this Russian imperialism through their complicity uh, by not standing against Russia's aggression uh, of Ukraine. And are you seeing any indication that China, India, some of these countries in the African world, some of these countries in the Middle East are seeing your argument, are hearing President Biden's argument that the world has to align with democracy and republics and against authoritarian governments? I think is there any hope? I do believe we have, is, is there is hope. I think we have to be very respectful. I think we have to avoid lecturing people and saying we, we are on the good side of the story. I think if we have a lot of respect, we try to understand where they stand, what, what they do believe in and what their feelings are, we can convince them. These guys are different from us. But all together, being respectful, we can work because what is at stake is global order. Peace, climate change, food security, all these things could be fixed if we have cooperation between the US, Europe, China, India, Asia and Pacific, Africa and Latin. So your, um, your ally, the United States ally, Germany, has been criticized a lot because of its dependence on fuel from Russia. Uh, people have said Germany is helping to fund the war. Now, Germany just announced it's going to nationalize a gas importer. Is this enough? Do they need to do more? I mean, it's very unfair to blame somebody because uh, all the industrial model was not adapted to one nobody predicted a few months ago. And I think everything in our way to function was based, let's be listed together, on the fact that trade, cooperations, integrations of value chains was probably the best way to prevent any conflict. It was, uh, I mean, the main rationale of the past decade. It's true. What Europe is, has to adapt to is that we were based on a model, and, and Germany more than France because we have nuclear power, but we are in, in perfect solidarity. We have to shift from a model where we thought cooperating with everybody was the best way to prevent war to a world where you have to build more autonomy and independence on some issues. Yeah. So this is why I'm a strong believer of this European sovereignty. In technology, in energy, for digital space, and, 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 and the key element like chips, and for uh, our defense, we can have cooperations. We have allies. But you need but independence on energy. We have to be much more independent at a continental level. Illuminating interview. Up next, the rise of nationalism and extremism, and it's not only in the U.S. President Macron's take on what's fueling this trend and why it's so dangerous. And we are back with more of Jake's interview with Emmanuel Macron. The French president weighed in on the delicate diplomacy involving Iran, as well as about whether democracy is in peril here in the U.S. and around the world. President Biden reiterated in his U.N. speech that the U.S. is not going to allow Iran to obtain nuclear weapons, to weaponize its nuclear program. You met with the president of Iran. Based on your conversation, where do you think Iran is on revitalizing any sort of nuclear deal so that they would be prevented from weaponizing their nuclear program? We have two, two steps. The first one is um, 
getting access to enriched uranium with different thresholds and how to prevent that. It, it's, it's, it's exactly the core of the GCPOA deal. Pushed by uh, uh, the US administration in 2015, left by the US administration another one uh, uh, in 2018, and that uh, European and the American wants to resume. I think a deal is feasible, but we know that we have to finalize this deal. And, and, and we have now to be clear that this is a final, final offer. What we made clear to President Ricey is the fact that we have this deal, we have some uh, past guarantees and some existing technical uh, 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 points identified by the international agency. They have to be fixed from a technical point of view without any political interference, and they, it's not part of, uh, of this agreement. Now we know it's a very important topic for the US domestically. We know it's a very important topic for the security of the whole region, Israel and the neighboring countries. And I do believe that for Iran, it could be a reasonable and a positive deal if they accept precisely to progressively normalize the situation. I, I, I'm not the ambassador. I cannot speak on behalf of them. Right. But I think they have an increasing pressure at home. I think they have now a geopolitical context, which is the one we described and we are discussing about. So I think having a deal could be a good option. So if we convey a clear message that, I mean, the deal is on the table to be taken or abandoned, it's good. Weaponization of, uh, of uh, this nuclear capacity is the second step, and I think this is something we have to work on with the whole region. And I want to insist on the fact that, for me, the security of the region is our top priority. We have to avoid weaponization of nuclear. We have to discuss about ballistic activities. We have to discuss about regional interferences of Iran. And we have to involve in this work all the countries of the region. So I want to ask you um, about this trend of um, nationalism, populism, and racism that we're seeing all over the world gaining power. A party founded by ultranationalist extremists and neo-Nazis gaining popularity in Sweden. Italy has elections on Sunday. A party there founded from the country's neo-fascist movement is leading in the polls. Right now, we've seen, obviously, uh, some of these elements in France. We see, obviously, some of these elements in the United States. Um, how worried are you about this spreading throughout Europe, spreading throughout the world? I think we have a big crisis of democracies, of what I would call liberal democracies. Let's, let's be clear about that. Why? First, because being open societies and open and very cooperative uh, democracies put pressure on your people. It could destabilize them. And this is why we always have to articulate the respect of um, people's willingness, middle classes references, and all the progress made by our democracies welcoming uh, uh, different cultures, being open and cooperative. This is a matter of balance. And it's clear that during the past few years we had an increasing pressure in our societies. 
And we are at a point where in our different countries, there is a, what I would call a crisis, a crisis of middle classes. They consider they are a little bit fragilized, weakened by, I mean, all this destabilization. Second, I think social networks, social platforms are playing a very important role. And what is at stake in our democracy? In a neg- they're, they're, they're negative. I mean, for the, for the best and for the worst. Yeah. It's, at the very beginning, it's the best way to cooperate. During the pandemic, thanks to social networks and cooperation, we were in full transparency. We exchanged a lot of information and data. We, I think we accelerated it's the way to way adapt. To accelerate lies, accelerate racism. But on the other side, right. it's clear that this is a Pandora box for fake news, for uh, 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 clearly uh, this new, I mean, and this new relativism, which is absolutely which is a killer for our democracies because it, it's completely breaking the relationship to truth and, and, uh, and to science and the, the, the basis of our own democracy. So I think this is a second phenomenon. And third, I think we have a big challenge in terms of efficiency. We have to deliver. Yeah. And for a lot of people, uh, they will not go to the extreme. So, a lot of them are not racist people uh, it's not xenophobia and this type of phenomenon. They just say, they didn't deliver and we didn't try these guys. Right. And they go to try them. And because of the lack of references, because they underestimate the fact that it's a complete, it's out of the spectrum of what is a political difference. It's just people going against our principles, but it's just, we didn't try them. They wanted to try something So new. this is... The addition of all this phenomena, but it's clear, and I want to be uh, to insist on that because I think it's at stake in your democracy, it's at stake in our democracy, and it's one of the big challenges. Do you the worry about years. our democracy? I worry about all of us. I'm, I'm, I, I, I hate lecturing people and saying I'm worried for you. I, I, I do worry You're worried for about me. yours as well. And it's, it's sufficient for me, <laughs> but I, 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 I do believe that what is at stake is what we built in the 18th century. And France played, I mean, had a very important role at that time with the yeah. Enlightenment. I've, I've read some history books, I know. And, yeah. and, 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 and I know, sorry for that, it's just because, I mean, I want to share, and I'm very proud. I'm, 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 sure. I'm, I'm a French guy. You're so our oldest ally. Let me, let me advocate You're our oldest ally, of course. Let, let, let me advocate the fact that we, we, we created and invented some, some stuff. Uh, but I want to insist on the fact that this idea of democracy was, was built on liberal values, the individual is highest than everything else, and, and freedom and a rational individual. Rule of law and a system of elected people, and prosperity for middle classes. And the fact that each generation will live better than the yeah. previous one. And, and this is a sort of balance and an interrelation between these different pillars. When one of them is at stake, and we have a big issue during the past few years, not to say decades, about prosperity for middle classes. We have some people challenging the fact that the individual, uh, the rational individual, is the most important thing. And we have a crisis in the functioning of our democracy and the ability to deliver. So because they're all, all together, all connected, they could all fall down. So we have also. to reinvent something, probably. Up next, another world leader who's not sold on Macron as the president of France. We're going to get his reaction. Plus, what Macron has to say about his name being wrapped up in the document seized at Mar-a-Lago.
And we are back with Jake Tapper's exclusive U.S. interview with French President Emmanuel Macron. He reacts to a not-so-glowing review from a fellow leader. Plus, what he thinks about reportedly being linked to those classified Mar-a-Lago documents. I do want to ask you about this uh, odd exchange um, with the new prime minister of the United Kingdom, Liz Truss, that she had right before she took office, before she met with you. Uh, just take a look. President Macron, friend or foe? The, the jury's out. But if I, if I, if I, if I, if I become, if I become prime minister, I'll judge him on deeds, not words. The jury's out on whether or not you're a friend or foe. So you, you've met with Prime Minister Truss. What do you make of that? And what did you make of your meeting with her? I mean, it's Prime Minister Truss to answer and to, to give you the answer of the jury. I've always been clear about the fact that for us there is no question. Brexit, not Brexit, we are allies. There is no doubt we are friends. We do share the same values. We fought together for liberty and freedom and, uh, and British people came to France for our independence. So the jury's not out for you? Never, ever. Last no, no, no discussion. And I think we, we have such a complicated word. If we start raising doubts about these fundamentals, I think we, we, we will lose a lot of time, energy, and create a lot of uh, frustrations. Lastly, I want to ask you, uh, former President Trump, there was an FBI raid on his Mar-a-Lago estate. I'm sure you've read about it. Reports are that some of the material, some of the classified material that the FBI found was about you. Um, I'm wondering if anybody has briefed you on this and if you have any idea what that information is. I read some newspaper about that, like you about the books. Uh, if you have more information, I would be delighted to share them. But you don't, you don't know what it is. Nobody's talked to you about I, I'm it. I'm not part of the FBI. I'm not one of the uh, of President Trump's lawyers. I have no information about that. I, I, I will not say it's extremely pleasant to, to, I mean, to see this type of information. I, I try to be less paranoid. Each day, so, I mean, I'm cool, I'm here, <laughs> and I would be delighted to have more information, but it's not, in my, <laughs> it's not on my side. All right. President Macron, thank you very much. Merci beaucoup. Really appreciate your time. No, thank you very much. I do appreciate, and I hope to follow up. I look forward to that. All right. Up next, a near-screaming match as Alex Jones took the stand, the contentious day in court. For the conspiracy theorists who for years called the murders of more than 20 children and teachers a hoax. Topping our national lead, Alex Jones, the man who once called the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting staged, nearly got into a screaming match on the stand in the defamation trial against him. Now, the case will ultimately determine how much Jones has to pay Sandy Hook families after he profited off the lie that the 2012 mass shooting was a hoax. CNN's Brent Gingras is following the trial for us. So, Brent, was the judge able to bring order to the courtroom? What happened? I mean, Pam, it was almost hard to understand what was accomplished in court because, as you said, there was a screaming match that was going on between the objections, the sidebars, the plaintiff's attorney yelling, the defense attorney yelling, Alex Jones yelling. At one point, the judge had to 
turned to Alex Jones and said to him, this is not a press conference. This is not your show. You need to respect the rules of the courtroom. That was what was happening. I want to bring to your attention, though, this moment where the plaintiff's attorney showed a video of Robbie Parker, who lost his daughter in Sandy Hook, and talked about how, hey, this guy is real. These families are real. They're sitting in this courtroom. And this was a fire exchange. Take a listen. You have families in this courtroom here that lost children, sisters, wives, moms. This is a struggle session. Are we in China? I've already said I'm sorry hundreds of times, and, I, and I'm done saying I'm sorry. I didn't progenerate this. I wasn't the first person to say it. American gun owners didn't like being blamed for this as the left did, so we rejected it mentally and said it must not be true. And but I legitimately thought it might have been staged, and I stand by that, and I don't apologize for and, it. And, and don't apologize, Mr. Jones. Please don't apologize. No, I've already apologized to the parents over because and over again. Because we know you're going to do it again. Don't apologize to you. Don't apologize to you. You're going to do it again. Objection, Judge. Objection. Objection. Argumentative. Don't apologize to you. Well, it's hard for me to get a word in edgewise. I mean, that was a frustration that was being felt by the judge. But these uh, she's made it clear there are no incendiary comments allowed in her courtroom. And he is going to be back on the stand tomorrow, Pam. And Jones also testified that he called the judge a tyrant, right? Explain what happened. Yeah, so this happened earlier in the day. Essentially, the plaintiff's attorney bringing up for the jurors that the fact that his website, InfoWars, is still spreading lies even as this trial is going on, even mocking that judge, calling her a tyrant, having her have laser eyes, showing an actual picture of the website with her having laser eyes. Again, all happening in front of these jurors. It's just been an interesting trial. And, of course, there is so much order that needs to be brought by this judge. And you have to, again, keep in mind, this is happening while the families of these people who have lost loved ones are sitting there at times crying, having to relive this nearly a decade later. And again, they have to do this again tomorrow when he is going to be cross-examined and maybe then redirected again uh, uh, tomorrow, Pam. Mm. Brendan Gross, thank you. And up next, a potential change in tide for one of the most powerful forces in conservative media, the Murdoch family empire. We'll be right back. And our pop lead, Rupert Murdoch, has built one of the largest media empires in history over the last several decades. And now the new CNN original series, The Murdoch's Empire of Influence, reveals through exclusive reporting how one family's ambitions are shaping business, media and politics around the globe. CNN's Athena Jones has more. Rupert Murdoch. Rupert Murdoch. Rupert Murdoch. Rupert Murdoch, patriarch of arguably the most influential media family in the world. A billionaire businessman who has already transformed America's political and media landscape and who could shape the next presidential election. There really hadn't been this kind of media political power in American history. Over seven decades, the News Corporation chairman built an empire, amassing unrivaled power on three continents. Supporting conservative politicians and policies from Margaret Thatcher. His newspapers had backed her. And she, in turn, backed him. And Ronald Reagan to Boris Johnson and Brexit. Through properties like the Wall Street Journal, the New York Post, and particularly Fox News, the media titan plays a major role in Republican politics. We used to talk about the Republican National Committee. Now we talk about Fox News. But as potential GOP contenders eye the White House, how will Murdoch and his holdings approach 2024, especially former President Donald Trump? 
The Journal and Post editorial pages provide some clues. That a lot of the former president's Mm -hmm. problems are of his own creation. And on Fox. When Rupert Murdoch got on board with Trump, we saw a diminishment of critical voices in its commentator ranks, in its analyst ranks. Now we're seeing commentators and even some hosts who have been very critical of Trump. Murdoch has criticized Trump's hyper-focus on the 2020 election, saying conservatives must play a forceful role in political debate. But that will not happen. President Trump stays focused on the past. He was not an early supporter of Trump, eventually coming around as Trump's popularity with Fox viewers grew. My friend Donald J. Trump. Fox's fawning, uncritical coverage helped the real estate mogul build a large and loyal following that has dominated the GOP. Come on up, Sean Hannity. That support on full display in 2018, when one of the network's most prominent hosts joined a campaign rally with Trump. Fox later calling his appearance a distraction. This time around, Rupert Murdoch is moving back to where he was or has moved back to where he was in 2016, where he's Trump will get no free ride. And his son, Lachlan, is right there with his father. They're going to make it hard on him. And it is the next in line, Murdoch's elder son, now co-chairman of News Corp, whom many will be watching. 2024 will be the first full open Republican election where Lachlan Murdoch is as important, if not more important, than his father's. He's not a Trump lover, so he could be the real it factor in how this plays out during the primaries. Athena Jones, CNN, New York. And our thanks to Athena. And be sure to tune in. The all-new CNN original series, The Murdoch's Empire of Influence, premieres Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern with back-to-back episodes only on CNN. And ahead, the updated track for Hurricane Fiona and a new storm system that could spell trouble for the Gulf Coast. Right now, a hurricane, a tropical storm, and three other systems spell trouble in the Atlantic. Let's get right to meteorologist Tom Sater in the CNN Weather Center. So, Tom, let's start with Hurricane Fiona. It could be one of the most powerful storms ever to hit Canada, right? Oh, most likely. In fact, the lowest pressure they've ever had in Canada, we measure in millibars, is 940. Uh, This is going to be about 925, 935. That's equivalent to a Category 4. Now, it's not going to be a hurricane when it makes landfall, but Superstorm Sandy wasn't either. This is going to be their Superstorm Sandy. Thank goodness it's well west of Bermuda. Conditions are deteriorating there. They're into the wind. They're into the uh, rainfall. But it stays to the east as a Category 3, then plows up into Atlantic Canada. More on that in a minute. We've got our own problems here. Dangerous rip currents and high seas. Already we're seeing wave heights up to 50 feet and they're going to get higher when it passes by Bermuda. So that's their biggest issue. But watch how these wave heights continue just to slam into Nova Scotia and Newfoundland. 29, 39 feet. This is amazing. That's why this is unprecedented to them. And when you look at the warnings in place for good reason, when it gets into the Gulf of St. Lawrence, we're going to be looking at tremendous storm surge. We're going to have winds a 400 mile swath of tropical storm force winds. Tens and tens of thousands of trees will be down, they're going to lose power to hundreds of thousands. Just a tremendous storm. Not good as it moves in this weekend. And another tropical storm is taking shape as well, right? That could be a problem for the Gulf Coast. 
Yeah, really could. And this is the one we're concerned about. It's not even named yet. It's off the coast of South America. This is the acorn that could become the oak tree and the first hurricane to really affect mainland U.S. The models take it in a couple of different areas. Will it come up through Cuba, western Cuba? Will it go toward the Yucatan? But this is Monday, and one of the models, the European, wants to bring it right in towards southern Florida, while the others bring it up more toward the panhandle. So the two models, very close agreement on Monday. It isn't named yet. Its name will be Hermine. That is something to watch in the next couple of days and probably will be named soon. All right, Tom Sater, thanks so much. And you can follow me on Twitter at Pamela Brown CNN or tweet the show at The Lead CNN. And if you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead wherever you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.